there's greater joy in him than in anything else. And I can tell you that even when I've walked through some of the most painful and difficult and hard times, there has still been joy in him. Thank you for listening to Sozo Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information on Sozo Church, visit sozospokane.com. the light that will guide you today if you will follow me not following an empty religion not following tradition not following not following some crafty ideas cooked up by men but rather follow me i will be personally your light to lead and guide and direct you this is sozo church We're doing seven messages on the I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Uh, We have these booklets real fast, if I can get some ushers. Uh, We have these booklets. We made these up. They have uh, three devotionals a week to kind of supplement or help you in your time with the Lord. Uh, i got a calendar of events that we have going on and some helpful information about how to pray, maybe, if that's something new to you, having personal time of prayer. Also, we're doing a 14-day Daniel fast starting next Sunday. So uh, gorge yourself on sweets and meat this week. No, kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, Daniel Fast, for those of you who don't know, is simply abstaining from meat, sweets, and alcohol uh, for a set allotment of time so that you can better and more clearly seek the Lord. So we're, we're doing that as a church starting next week. Uh, during that time, we'll have additional prayer meetings, and the church will be open at additional times for you to come and, and seek the Lord uh, in the midst of that. And then we have these things called, we're calling crashes. We learned last week a group of rhinos is called a crash. Uh, And when rhinos get together, they can do things collectively that they're incapable of on their own. And so we want you to realize that that's a very good representation of the Christian life. When you are together in true community with other believers, uh, your ability to demonstrate Jesus to the world around you and thus fulfill your ultimate purpose is greater than when you're by yourself. It's not just a multiplication factor. It's something supernatural that goes beyond that. So if you need one of these books, sorry, ushers, I told you to get up and then I forgot. Uh, if you need one of these, if you weren't here last week or your dog ate yours or you lost it, there's forgiveness. It's a new year. Um, if you just raise your hand real fast, our ushers will get these to you. Um, raise it high and proud because you really want one of these. They're great. Really proud of our team for putting these together. So um, that is that. While they're handing those out, I'm going to go ahead and I apologize, guys. I don't have any control up here. Hey, there it is. Maybe. Okay, thank you. I love technology, really I do. Um, It's a lie, I'm sorry. John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 12 is where we're going to be this morning. John chapter 8, verse 12. It says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, verse 14, if, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. 
In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, I thank you this morning for your living, powerful, active, amazing word. God, I ask that as we uh, hear your word this morning, as you open your word to us, that you would breathe life upon it, that you would breathe a newness and a fullness of your life to us through your word. Jesus, I ask that we would hear you and that we would respond to you. God, that we would know what it is you would say to us this morning. We come to you, Jesus, as a desperate people in need of, of your word, in need of hearing you, of, of hearing what it is you would say to us. And so, God, we humbly and yet boldly ask as your children, as you call us your children, we ask for you to speak to us, for us to have ears and hearts that are open and receptive to your word. God, soften any hard heart that's here this morning. Silence any distraction that may be within us and let us hear you clearly and articulately as you speak to us. All for your glory, all for your name, and all for your renown. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. Come on, everybody said? Amen. Amen. Real fast, uh, before we get into the specific context of this, I need us to understand something here because it's going to play into our understanding not only for this morning, but for um, the totality of this series. Jesus here is saying a lot in very few words. Uh, Each time Jesus says, I am, all all seven times when Jesus makes these I am statements, uh, it is a very, if I can put it this way, a very loaded statement that I think when we read it in the English and when we read it from an American cultural standpoint, we don't quite understand. Um, Because when I, I read this, and I've even had conversations with people who have backgrounds similar to mine that maybe were into sort of uh, mysticism and, and those types of things. Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, isn't really all that shocking. And yet when you read it in context, uh, how the Pharisees, which are the religious leaders at the time, they respond very, if I can put it this way, almost violently toward him. I mean, it says at the bottom, like they, they, they didn't even try to, they, didn't, they weren't able to arrest him because it wasn't their time. It doesn't say nobody wanted to arrest him. It, it's almost like they're saying they, they really didn't like what was going on, but they were unable to do what God had not willed for them to do. What we need to understand here is Jesus is hearkening back to Old Testament language that all of these people would have understood. Old Testament being the first part of our Bible's Genesis through Malachi. And, and, and he's hearkening back to Exodus where, where when Moses, if you saw the movie Prince of Egypt, you're with me on this. Moses, is, uh, he sees the burning bush and, and, and it's God in the midst of that. And he says, go and deliver my people. Tell them to, to let my people go. And Moses, in, in his understanding of, of Egyptian culture, said, look, there are, they have lots of gods. Which one do you want me to tell them is saying this? And, and God says, I am who I am. He gives himself a name. He, he gives himself an identifiable uh, uh, name for us to understand. And Jesus here is doing the same thing. We don't pick up on it in English. What he's saying, he's using both Greek terms for I am. Fun little Greek lesson if you love these. Awesome if not. 
text somebody. Um, what he says here, he, he uses both terms. He uses ego, which is the word we get ego from, and emi. So he's saying, what he's saying is, I am, I am the light of the world. He's literally hearkening back to that Old Testament language. And, and a, a, a religious leader in the Jewish world at that time would understand that that is blasphemy. He's calling himself God. He's, he's, he's calling toward himself that which is, is linked to specifically God. Now, does Jesus have a right to do this? Um, yes, and we're, we're going to see this hopefully if this is still working in Jesus' name. Uh, light's meaning from the Old Testament. Yay. Um, we, we see here that in the Old Testament, God is light to his people, according to Psalm 27, 1. We see that uh, in his presence, his people, when they're in his presence, which would be that light, they experience peace and grace. In, in God's, uh, that God is also, or rather God's servant, rather, is a light to the nations to bring about salvation. And last but certainly not least, God's word, it says, is a light. His word or his law is a light that guides and directs our path. Now, here's what I need you to see. It is right and appropriate. I'm sure that next one will pop up eventually. Um, I love technology. Um, it's right and good for Jesus to say these things because he is one with the Father, so therefore he is a light to his people. He, he is the very presence of God with us, Emmanuel, God with us. So, of course, his presence uh, would bring about peace and grace. Jesus is the servant of God that brings about light to the nations to bring about salvation. And according to John, uh, the first chapter of John, he is the word made flesh, so he is the guide. So him saying this is not inappropriate. Are you with me? He has the right to say this. He, he is the light to the world. He doesn't, he doesn't possess it like maybe a guru or a teacher would, would say, I, I have the light of the world. No, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He is this by his very nature because he and the Father, he says, are one. So Jesus is the light of the world. What he's doing here in saying he's the light of the world is he's pitting a very familiar biblical uh, con, uh, context of light and darkness. Everybody say light. light. Come on. Darkness. Light and darkness. He's, he's pitting these uh, against one another. Now, I need to make sure we understand this. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm being a little bit um, overly repetitive here, but I believe we're we're either laying foundations for some of you or we're revisiting foundations. If there's one thing I believe, it is that foundations are incredibly important. Uh, we had a neighbor across the street from us several years ago when, uh, when we lived up further on the South Hill, and, uh, and their house burned down. Caught fire in the middle of the night, and it, it burned down. And, and it was interesting to me to watch the process of them rebuilding the house because they had to tear everything down except, guess what? foundation. Foundation was still there. And I remember the morning uh, getting up and getting ready to go to church and looking across the street and seeing they'd cleared everything and yet the foundation was, was still there. And, and it was a reminder to me that the foundations we lay in the gospel and in our lives are of eminent importance. Everything we build on top of that foundation will have, will have direct results for its stability and its longevity based on the foundation that's set what the foundation is and how well it's been laid. So I don't, I don't mind taking a little bit of time to make sure we understand this. Uh, 1 John 1, 5 through 7 says, this is the message we have heard from him 
and proclaim to you that God is light. Everybody say, God is light. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Here's what I need you to understand. The Bible does not teach yin and yang. When it talks about darkness and light, it is not teaching that, well, there is darkness and there's an equal balance of light, and in darkness there is light, and in light there is darkness. It's not, Jesus isn't going into here the quantum physics level of the fact that light is both a particle and a wave. He doesn't, that, that's not the point, okay? The Bible teaches very clearly that in God there is light, and in God there is no darkness. And that if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Hello, somebody. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There's not supposed to be a yin and yang in God. There is not, amen? And there's not supposed to be in us. There's not this idea that that the Bible teaches that they they are diametrically opposed to one another. That in the kingdom of darkness is a kingdom of falsehood. The kingdom of light is a kingdom of truth. The kingdom of light, or darkness rather, is ignorance. Light is wisdom. Darkness is is impurity. Light is holiness. Come on. That in darkness there is sorrow and weeping and turmoil. And that in light, come on, there's joy and peace and grace. These are opposed to one another. Light dispels darkness. Darkness creeps in where light is absent. These are not yin-yang types of things here. Jesus is not being a guru. Are we, are we together on that? What Jesus is saying here is that Jesus is that which illuminates the true arrangement of things. His light, the light that shines forth from Jesus, shows the truth of what is going on and the reality of the world around us and allows him to lead and guide and direct us. He himself, by his very nature, is the light of the world that we need. Amen? So I, I want to dive into the surroundings of what's happening here in the Gospel of John. I, I want us to understand something about where Jesus is and why I believe he made this statement at this time, which forces me um, half happily and half not so happily um, to have to address an issue that I'm hoping to address clearly and articulately and not cause anybody to stumble. How many people here without, you don't have to respond verbally or loudly or raise your hands or hoot and holler unless you really want to, believe the Bible. Okay, we're a church that believes the Bible. 66 books, 40 authors. We, we believe this is the living, active word of God. Um, Quick history lesson, the Bible, for the most part, I'm generalizing a little bit here. Old Testament was written in the, in the language called Hebrew. New Testament predominantly was written in a language called Greek. Now, we use the ESV Bible uh, here at Sozo predominantly. Um, and if you have an ESV printed Bible, I'm not sure if the, if the digital copies of this do this. Um, but you'll notice at the start of chapter 8, there's a little notation from technically verse 753 all the way through verse 811. Now help me here a little bit. Give me a little bit of room. Um, what you need to understand, I think I have a slide for this again. This stopped working, guys. I'm sorry. Um, John seven fifty three through eight eleven 11 um, is missing from all Greek manuscripts before the 5th century. Uh, it's, it's just not there. Now, for those of you who are the young Christians um, who are, 
who are antagonistic Christians and want to try to erode away the um, infallibility or reliability of the New Testament, I, I want to just speak to this real fast because I think this is important for us to understand. There are five, we have in our possession 5,801 both full and partial copies of the New Testament. These are Greek manuscripts. That's according to the Institute for New Testament textual research. <laughs> um, it's in Germany, if you want to look it up. Really cool website. I have some of their printed um, versions of, of these manuscripts where they print them. You actually can go on their website if you're a nerd like me. Uh, and uh, you can actually, they have digital pictures of these manuscripts so you can see them. We have 5,801, both full and partial manuscripts. Uh, just to give you a little bit of context here real fast, um, Julius Caesar's uh, Gaelic Wars, we have 10 copies of that total. 10. Um, Livy's Roman history, we have 20 copies of that total, and it goes downhill from there. Uh, the histories and um, annuals, uh, hi, uh, we have two copies of that, uh, and uh, the list literally just goes down from there, and these are, uh, these are, are, are texts that we base most of what you learn in school about Roman and Greek history from, and so we say, well, we only have a couple of those, but but those are reliable. But the fact that a few manuscripts uh, after the 5th century include this part of, of the Gospel of John that aren't in other places, uh, I don't want you to think that that's a, a reason to discount, rather, the accuracy of our Bibles. But rather, I need you to understand that it's actually a reason to believe the accuracy of our Bible. The, 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 the reason that we have, or, or the, the reality from having 5,801 partial copies and copies of the New Testament means that we have great checks and balances. The fact, catch this, please, that we even know that this is an addition should give you great faith in our Bibles. Now, I don't know personally why they chose um, not, to not to just take this out of the Bible as a whole. Um, we know this is, is true. If you, if you look at actually all of the early church uh, commentaries, none of them have this included in them. They're just not there. They skip right over it. Uh, this, this passage, 753 through 811. Um, what we do understand, though, is the reality, what, what we think we know is it's probably part of the oral tradition of the life of Jesus. So it's probably uh, something that did happen. I, I personally believe it probably happened. It was part of the oral tradition. There's both the written tradition of Jesus' life, which we call gospels, and, and there's the oral tradition that was passed down as people just told stories about when they saw Jesus on the earth. Uh, when this does pop up in, in, the, in the Gospel of John, it pops up here and in three other places. And actually, also, in one manuscript of the Gospel of Luke, this is just for all the nerds in the room, it pops up at the end of the Gospel of Luke. They just, like, threw it in. Uh, the story is the story of the woman caught in adultery. Uh, and while it is not inerrant, meaning it is not the Bible, are we all clear on that? I know it's in your Bible. This is where it gets confusing, and I know I'm walking a fine line here. It is not inerrant. However, it's not heresy. What I mean by that is this. It doesn't introduce anything into the character and nature and attributes of Jesus that is contrary to anything else in the Gospels. Are we together on this? And the reason I'm bringing this up is twofold. One, we're going to go back to this here in a moment because I think there's a reason why they threw it here in this. And I think we can learn from it, albeit not in the same level as scripture. And the second reason is it also just happens to be one of my absolute favorite stories from the life of Jesus. I think it demonstrates some powerful truths in that area. So the reason why I bring it up 
why I had to go down that whole road that most of you, congratulations, stayed awake for, is this, when we, when we read this passage as it appears in the proper manuscripts, it goes straight from 752 to 812. And there's a reason why I need you to understand that. If we understand it in that flow, we now know what, where Jesus is, which it tells us a little bit in, in verse 12. But when we understand the time of day from the previous passage, we understand that this is as Jesus has been teaching in the, in the temple rather for a while. And we know from the previous passage that Jesus is there during a feast. He's there during a celebration time in the temple. And he's there during, during the time of uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. Here's why this is important. During the Feast of Tabernacles, this is when Israel celebrated their wandering in the wilderness. So Israel, for those of you who don't know your Old Testament, uh, the, the Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and they were led, the Bible tells us, by a pillar of fire during the night and by a cloud that rabbis tell us glowed during the daytime. So you're starting to maybe get an idea why Jesus said what he said when he said it. He's not only hearkening back to the fact that he is the I am that I am. He's hearkening back to it was me who led your fathers in the wilderness. But there's even another dynamic here. It says he was in the midst of the treasury. Quick, again, history lesson. For those of you who love these things, you're all like happy and the rest of you are like, why are we doing this? I feel like I'm in school. Follow me. There'll be something here for you. So the temple had varying courts. Jesus was in the court of women which would have been the most packed court at that time during that season because of this celebration. And what the Bible, or what, what historians tell us is part of the way they celebrated this feast was they had candelabras throughout the entirety of that part of the temple. So at night, they would light these candles. They would light these big, we might call them menorahs if we saw them. They would light these huge, they were gigantic, and they would light these things as they were there. And, and I wonder personally from just the timing of as Jesus was teaching through this, if he started to say, I am the light of the world, this is my personal perspective, as they began to light these candles. He's saying, look, these candles, you're, you're here and you're celebrating this. And what you don't realize is what you're really celebrating is me. I am the light of the world. I was the light that guided your fathers in the wilderness. And I am the light that will guide you today if you will follow me. Not following an empty religion, not following tradition, not following, not following some uh, crafty ideas cooked up by men, but rather follow me. I will be personally your light to lead and guide and direct you. I was reading a, a historical account of a, of a traveler who was in Jerusalem during one of these times. And, and the way he described the temple at that moment was he said that the temple during this festival what shined in the, middle, in the middle of the city as if it were a diamond set in the midst of a ring. Can I tell you when Jesus, please hear me church, when Jesus is what we make the light of our church, that's when the church becomes a light that shines in the midst of our city. When Jesus is what is being exalted and Jesus is who is being magnified and Jesus is who is being glorified and made much of and, and, and we are pointing people toward, that is when we become attractive to the, church, to the city around us. That's when we can drop smoke and lights and lasers and, and skits and dramas. And I'm not knocking any of those things, but when we rely on those things to bring about uh, guidance and leading us as a people, at best, 
we are being led by the moon. We're being led by things that might be reflecting a little bit of Jesus, but they're not Jesus. I don't know about you guys, but I, I don't want to be a church that simply kind of sort of looks at things that kind of sort of look like Jesus. We've had a statement since the beginning here. We say that it's all about Jesus. I want to be a church that really means that. I want to be a church that, that means it's all about Jesus. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't have to re- rely on and, and try to cook up things to, to somehow make things more effective, but rather a church that rests in him. He says that when we do this, when we follow after him, when we go with him, when we're led by him, when we submit and surrender to him, he says that we have life. This word life is the same word life he used in the previous week when he said he was the bread of life. It's Zoe life. It's true, genuine life. Not just movement and mobility, but true, genuine life shown to us. Amen? So, I gave you a history lesson. Told you that this passage wasn't really, shouldn't really be here. Now we're going to read it. <laughs> I, I, the reason I want us to read this is I want you to see there's no heresy in it. I want you to, I hope, this, put the message aside for a second. I hope by sharing that I strengthened your faith in your Bible, not decreased it. I think the fact that we have a God that has preserved for us such a clear understanding of the New Testament is reason to worship him, not doubt him. I want you to hear what this passage says. We're going to pick it up at verse 8, or verse 1 of chapter 8, because verse 43 simply says, they went each to his own home. I think there's, there's a reason why they started including this in this text, and I think it's because it shows us what happens to us in our response when we're exposed to the light of Jesus? So John chapter 8, verse 1 says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus, please catch this, was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. But catch this, please go. And from now on, sin no more. I think 
why fifth century Christians put this here was they were trying to give us a picture of what happens when people encounter the light of Jesus. Can I tell you what? I think, I think we have three basic responses that people have when exposed to the light. One, they, they run like cockroaches. Anybody ever lived in a, a low-budget apartment and had cockroaches? Um, I lived in Houston where we had cockroaches. They weren't even afraid of the light because they were the size of turtles. Um, if you stepped on them, they stepped on you. But we've lived in some places. We, we lived in one place uh, in, in the other side of the state where uh, we didn't know it. We, we moved into this kind of newer housing development. The church we were on staff at had picked this house out for us, and we moved there. And what we didn't know, we were kind of shocked that such a nice house and what we thought was such a nice neighborhood would even be available for rent. And just happy to be there. And then as winter kind of wore off and, and, and spring came, we, we noticed sounds in the walls. Well, what we didn't know is that this housing development had been built on top of a, a former, just a, a field that had been used for farming, and it was infested with mice. And, and while, while building houses there certainly made it look nicer than a, a farming field, it didn't drive away the mice. And so our garage specifically was just infested with them. What I felt horrible about was we didn't find this out until I was gone on a ministry trip, and I'm getting text messages from my wife about the, the fact that when she would turn the lights on, it was like a, a scurry of mice would go everywhere. And I felt so horrible that she had to deal with that problem as the only way you can deal with a problem like that. You know, it, it, that's one way we respond to the light. When we're in darkness and light comes on, we run. We're afraid of the light. When his guidance and his leadership and his direction and his, come on somebody, when his, when his ways are, are shown to us, we go, no, 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 I don't want that. Interesting fact here. Some, some people believe and it's a part of some of the other written down accounts of this story that, that Jesus, when he, when he knelt down and wrote on the ground with his finger, when he's knelt down first, he wrote the names of all of the men that were surrounding this woman. So he kneels down, he's writing there, well, should, we, should we condemn her, should we condemn her, should we condemn her? And he's just ignoring them as he writes all their names. Come on, remember, he's God, so he would know that. In case you missed that part. Like, oh, he knew them all? Yeah, because he's God. And he's writing all their names. And, and one version that I read said that when he knelt down the second time, and I just, again, this isn't Bible, so we have a little bit of room here. I love this idea. Bible says that he put, uh, not the Bible, but these, these stories said that he, he began to write down sins that they committed next to their name, which would then make sense when it says the oldest left first, right? Like, oh, Woo, okay, yeah, I got, a, I, got a, I got coffee on at home. There's a roast in the oven and bread, and I got to go. I'll see you guys later. Never mind. One thing that can happen when the light turns on is we can run. Embarrassed, we can be ashamed, and we run. The next thing we can do, and it's what the woman kind of did at first, was she just stood there. Sometimes when when our lives are exposed to the light, when we begin to see ourselves for who we really are. I remember before I had an, uh, an actual real encounter with Jesus, I'll be honest, I thought I was a pretty good guy. I mean, I know I was a horrible person, but I thought I was a pretty good guy. I was only slightly worse than some of the people I knew. And I wasn't nearly as bad as that one guy. So, I mean, I'm not at the bottom of the list. And when I began to see Jesus for who he really is, 
it only more reinforced the reality of the distance between who I was compared to who he is. And this woman, as, as, as she's exposed, look, there's no hiding anymore for her. I mean, if you read here, it says she was caught in the very act. Now, we can go into the, like, where's the dude, right? Takes two to tango, all that stuff. And, and, but, and I don't mean to be PG-13, but all the junior hires are out. Anyway, so if she was caught in the very act, I imagine as she's ripped from the bed, she's grabbing curtains as she goes out of the house trying to find something to cover herself with. She's being drugged to the temple. She knows what's about to happen. And she's exposed and she just stands. Just, it makes her freeze. I, I remember I heard this from a young man in, in youth ministry. He was, he'd been coming to our youth ministry for a, a, a while and, and he said, I, I went out to coffee with him and talked to him about his walk with the Lord. He said, I don't have a walk with the Lord. I don't even know if I believe this Jesus thing. But every week I want to be here and w- when I get here, I can't leave. It's like I'm frozen in the midst of all of this. I don't know what to do with it, but I'm just, I'm just stuck. Anybody ever had that experience when, when it's like your life gets ripped open by the light and you're just kind of, uh, hi. <laughs> Jesus asks, is anybody condemn me? She's like, uh, no. Which gives us the third thing, and that is we can be led by the light. Jesus said, I don't condemn you either, so go and sin no more. And then if you read the next part, he's teaching her how to go and sin no more. Follow after me. Follow the light. Get out of the darkness. Get out of of ignorance. Get get out of wickedness. Get out out of sorrow and, and move into, come on somebody, move into wisdom and move into purity and move into joy. Where you are is darkness and you don't need to be there anymore. I'm the light of the world. I have come. Follow me and you won't walk in this darkness anymore. Listen to me. It's not about not walking in darkness. It's about walking in light. So I'm not coming up with a list of like, what are the 47 things I can't do now that I'm a Christian? No, it's about following Jesus with all of our heart and all of our affection and all of our life and finding him as the only source of true joy and guidance in our life. Look, I follow Jesus not because the things I did before Jesus weren't fun. I follow Jesus because there is more full joy in him than in anything else. He's the source of that joy. He is that joy. Amen? So as for those of you who are maybe being exposed to Jesus for the first time, look, you can, you can run away, you can stand here with your jaw dropped open, or you can follow Jesus. You, you, can, you can surrender your life to him, you can surrender your, your guidance to him, you can confess once and for all, please hear me, that you're wrong, and he's right. Because here's the truth, not only is Jesus showing them in this that he's the light and they're the darkness, and they don't even, can't even tell that he's the light. You wonder why they can't tell he's the light? Because the Bible not only says that we walk in darkness, but I'm sorry to tell you, the Bible also says that you're blind. So it doesn't even matter if there is light, you can't see it. That's why the Pharisees couldn't see it if he's the light, because they're also blind. You need Jesus to give you new sight, and then you need to walk after him in the light. So for those of you who have not yet repented of your sins and trusted Christ, have your eyes opened by him. Repent and walk in the light. I, 
need you to understand there is better joy for you in Jesus than in anything else. Because once you pick Jesus, your life is just a never-ending bounce from cloud to cloud with no problems. (laughs) No. But there is greater joy in him than in anything else. And I can tell you that even when I've walked through some of the most painful and difficult and hard times, there has still been joy in him. And I want to bust somebody's bubble here. I I wasn't planning on going here, but somebody here believes what I used to believe, and that is glorifying God and living your life for Jesus and your joy are contradictory paths. You have to pick. Glorify Jesus or have a good life. Have joy. Your joy and God's glory are opposite ends of the spectrum. You think that your joy is in the darkness and God's glory is in the light. And therefore, I said it's not yin and yang and you can't have both. The reality is God has so designed you and me that the greatest place you will find joy is when you are fulfilling your ultimate purpose, which is to glorify and exalt him. Your greatest joy rests in your exaltation of him and not yourself. Now for believers... Going to land the plane here. Back at 1 John, this time verse, we're going to pick up verse 7. It's where we left off before in this passage where it talked about God is light. If we have fellowship with him, we walk in in light. If we don't, we are making him, we, we lie and don't practice the truth. It says, and if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Catch this, please, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Listen, believer. Walking in the light is a process. Walking in the light is a journey. Walking in the light is something we grow in. But pretending like we have no darkness is not the same as walking in the light. Can I talk to the believers in the room for just 30 seconds? Could it be true that the world is fearful of confessing their sins in the midst of the church because the church pretends like we don't have any? Somehow I got baptized this one time and then I just like became this saint that never sins and never gets mad and always is happy when I'm driving on the freeway. <laughs> never gets frustrated, never struggles, never is tempted, never. I just, I just live in this perpetual state of glorious encounters with the Holy Spirit one to another to another, just never ending ecstasy of joy. I look forward to that day after I die But Jesus said, in the world you will have trouble. But he said, I leave you my peace. The peace we have is that we come to him and we admit constantly, continually, repetitively, I still suck at life. I'll be honest with you, if I can be this transparent, I, I sometimes wonder if I'm worse off now than I was when I first trusted him. Moments when I go, what, what am I doing 
How, how, how am I still struggling with these things? I'll respond to my kids in anger and I'll think, that's not Jesus. And yet I have learned that as we come to him, as we rest in him, as we rely upon him, his grace and his goodness, just as it says here, cleanses us. Can I tell you something, Christian? If you find yourself in that struggle, the answer is not pretend like you didn't sin. The answer is not run away from him. The answer is stand in his presence and receive his grace. Confess your sin. Not just your sins, but your sin. The reality of your fallen, broken, busted heart. The reality that while he has given you sight to see, you still see very blurry. You still need him to open your blind eyes and to give you sight. 